me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to be the light of the world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you, the Father of lights, would cause his light to shine into the deep places of our hearts. That we would know and be set free once again in the light of life to the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. So most of you know that a few weeks ago I got back from a trip to Jerusalem. Um, actually, it was a number of different places in Israel and also in, in Bethlehem as well. And uh, it was an incredible blessing in so many ways. And so you've heard that pepper into a few of my sermons already. Um, but one of the prayers that I prayed before I left was that I would just be open for whatever God had. And that meant to me as I was praying, and this is partly the advice of Father Steve who lived in Jerusalem for a good long time. It was like whatever I could receive by being in the places, for instance, that Jesus walked, it's overwhelming. Like so you, to, to really take it all in is, is an almost impossible task, especially in a, a short time. So I just prayed that I'd be open and that somehow I would receive and maybe over time digest it. And I, he also encouraged me to be open to whatever the Lord is doing right now in Israel, for instance. But I also took it to be like whatever he might be doing right in the moment of my days. And uh, so I went around uh, with my eyes kind of wide open, wondering what I might discover and uh, had found a lot of wonderful things. Um, including some, some uh, new friends who are here. Tom and Lisa were there with us on the trip from our Cathedral Church of the Resurrection. But um, one of the things that so blessed me upon reflection, and I sent our bishop a text about it just this last week, was how much he has been a person of joy in my life. So what would happen uh, throughout the, the time when we were traveling together um, is, is he was, I don't know, he just has this life energy, right? He's got so much joy. I mean, it's just so effusive coming out of him. Um, he's a, boob, a boolean, right? That's the word, I think. It just, it just bubbles forth all the time. And um, so, uh, you know, like we went at 5.30 in the morning to go to Holy Sepulchre once, and he's got this thing where he says, he says, are you, are you sharp? You gotta be sharp. And he's like, he always makes this, this pointy thing with his hands. He's like, you got to be really sharp. Are you sharp, Olson? Are you ready to go? You know, and of course, he's ready and ready to go. And I'm like, well, I'm still waking up. Plus, I'm Norwegian. But, um, <laughs> you know, are, are you ready to go? And uh, or that I was, I was a, a couple days we didn't see each other very much on the tour. And then he'd, he'd come at me, like, with these open arms. He'd say, I missed you. And he'd give me a great big bear hug. Um, just a, a person of joy. I think I told you guys already that the time where we were up in, maybe this is one of our Oasis services, we were up in northern uh, Canadian Rockies in the, in the wilderness there with, with Bishop Stewart and Bishop Todd, his new friend. And Bishop Todd is like, a, he looks like a Viking. He's like six foot three or four and he's got a big, huge beard. And he's a man's man and he's a, he's a person of joy as well. So these are like brothers of joy. And I remember this one time, Stewart's out running around in the wilderness. I can only hear his voice and he's saying, praise the Lord, you know, echoing through the, the canyon <laughs> as he's running around the, the river there. It was just so beautiful, but he's just taking it all in, in joy. And then we come around the band with Bishop Todd, and the next thing I know, he's tackled Bishop Todd to the ground. 
and he's wrestling. I mean, these two bishops, these men, one of them's older than I am, and they're wrestling around on the ground with laughter and joy. And uh, then, then Stuart jumps up, and he, he goes and he grabs a stick, gives a stick to Bishop Todd, and he says, on guard, like that. And then they start fighting with wooden swords. <clears throat> and uh, it was just such a, so much so much joy, and it wasn't just, it was very human joy, right? That's like very human joy, and it's, it's almost silly, it's so playful, and yet, I mean, this is the man who is my, my bishop. He's, he's my overseer in the church, and he's in the line of the apostles, you know, that, that usually you don't think of it this way, right, that somebody would be like that, at least I, I haven't often but I, I had uh, come across a quote a few years ago that I had given to Stuart at the beginning of his episcopate. And it was this idea in the early church that the bishop isn't so much master of your faith as he is servant of your joy. And that's what it really means to be a good bishop. That's what it really means to be an apostle as somebody who is in a state of joy and communicates that through their being. It radiates out of them and it comes out in words and it comes out in greetings and they're joyful and therefore they can people be people of good news. I mean, their feet really are shod in light and they have light to bring in other people's lives. Stuart is a person like that for me. I thought about that um, again this week, primarily because, and I'm gonna walk back and get some water. Um, this week we're gonna finish up our um, teaching on the Feast of the Tabernacles. You may recall a couple weeks ago we talked about the first part of the Feast of the Tabernacles which included the water libation ceremony. So this is the feast that was commanded by Moses, actually by God through Moses to the people of Israel. I want you to remember what it was like to live in the wilderness. And the way I want you to do that is at harvest time, after you've enjoyed the abundance of the land, I want you, and after uh, Yom Kippur, atonement, I want you to celebrate the time of wilderness by living in tabernacles. So you have to set up these, like, these, it's basically like a tent-type situation with thatched roofs with leaves over the top. You can probably see the stars through the ceiling, uh, but you're kind of exposed to the elements. And the idea is that this time of the fall, you're supposed to feel a little bit that kind of vulnerability. You can get a little too secure in your self-provision, you know, and you're thinking that I've, I've, I'm actually running my own life and I'm producing all my own fruit and I'm just enjoying the fruits of my labors, forgetting that it's all a gift. Forgetting the lesson of the wilderness that you really are dependent upon God for everything. I mean, in the wilderness they learned that the manna from heaven was the real bread of life. We looked at that again last week. We, we learned in, in uh, the, the Israelites and us through them, we learned that he caused water to spring forth from a rock so they would have this water libation ceremony in, in the Feast of Tabernacles and start out, you know, sort of a southeast of the temple, down the hill a little bit, and at the Pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam is where they would have anointed the kings of Israel like David himself. And the idea was that in 
view of the coming age when the waters would flow out of the temple. There'd be such a fruitfulness and they would go down to this place where the Messiah kings of past days had been anointed like David and they would take that water up to, to the, the, um, the temple and at the altar pour it out. We talked about that a good bit. That's the water part of the ceremony. What we did not talk about is that that whole celebration, which speaks of life and life abundant, was preceded by a huge festival of light, an incredibly joyful festival of light. And um, in the temple at this time, and like, I think they were up all throughout the year, you would have in the court of the women, which is where women and really all of Israel could gather, um, but the women would be up in the balcony area, and at the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would light these massive um, candelabra, and there were like seven uh, torches coming out of the tops of them, and um, they were so huge, they were like 75 feet. I, could, I think that's like six stories tall. Just massive, massive. And it, the, um, the flames were so big that they, they, were, they were fed by olive oil that held 40 gallons. And um, the, the light was amazing for the, I mean, they didn't have like the street lamps that we do and the highway lamps that we do. So it was an incredibly rare thing in those days to have that. And uh, you could see it, it said from miles around and they would say, this is the, this is the time of our joy to see that. And to come to that. You don't really know joy if you haven't been there. You don't really know joy at all if you haven't been there. And then the other thing that, again, reminded me of Stuart in particular was in this festival of light that started in the evening, um, it was full of music, but it was also full of dance. And here's the unique part of it. Well, you have, you have like these stairs at one part of it that lead into the altar area where the priests would sacrifice, but you have these like 15 stairs and then fanned across all these stairs, you've got these Levites who are musicians and they're helping everybody to sing the Psalms of Ascent at that point. The, the, the Psalms of gradually moving up into the Lord's presence, which is what the temple is. It's, it's up there and you move up, but you sing your way in joy up into his presence. And that was the idea of it. And at the same time, what was perhaps the most wonderful manifestation of joy were all the old men of Israel, like the wise men, the guys that headed up the rabbinic schools, like the men of renown, like the people with dignity that would walk around the streets in their dignity and their honor. They would dance and they would sing and they would celebrate and um, they would, according to some of the records that I've, I've been able to come across, they, they would say things like, uh, you know, well, they're praising the Lord again and again. They're saying, save us and praise the Lord. They're shaking the branches of celebration as they dance in this light, this joy of the Lord's light. And um, they're saying, I thank you that my old age has not shamed my youth, you know, and that their youth is still coming forth in their old bodies. And they're actually showing Israel what it's like to be people of the light. And at this um, particular time where you come to the gospel, it's the day right after that. So the, the very last day of that festival of light, it was, in, it was the expl most explosive because they're, they're going to circle around the altar seven times. I mentioned that before, like they did at Jericho. You know, it's, it's such an emphatic, intense demonstration that God's in charge. And we can take joy in this. And, but also that he's going to cause fruit to come from, from, the, um, 
from the outpouring of his spirit. And um, they would sacrifice 70 bulls. That's huge. But they did it because they thought of it as tabernacles is not just for Israel. It was for all the nations. And the 70 were the the nations that were counted at that time. In those days of old, they, they thought that there were maybe 70 people groups. And so they, they would do that sacrifice, and it was really a celebration that God is the light of the world, and that in the coming messianic age, when the kingdom of God really comes to earth in all of its glory, um, everyone is going to be blessed there, or they're, or they're not. This, in a way, there's judgment involved here too. But the kingdom of God will be established and it will be a cause of joy. And so what Jesus is doing in our passage from this morning, he's there the day right after that seventh day of tabernacles has come to an end and it actually happens to be another sort of mini, um, well, it's, it's really a Sabbath. That's what they would call it. It's a Sabbath. But it's in remembrance of, and it's almost like the afterglow of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the idea is that you're to fully receive everything, all that light. The Lord really wants you to somehow take it into your soul and to begin to reflect and refract that light, if you will, into your own heart and into your own homes and bring it into every dimension of your life right now that you can actually be people of light. And so Jesus is in this time on the eighth day. It's a significant number. It's a significant number for us because on the eighth day, the Lord was raised from the dead and the light of the resurrection burst onto the scene. The first fruits of the kingdom to come, that light of joy burst onto the scene. So eighth day means a lot to us, but it meant a lot to them too because it was, it was really a way of saying, we're starting a new cycle. We're starting something new but it's at a higher scale. It's in a divine um, key, if you will. And it has an impact here on earth, but it's a new thing that God has established. It's one of the reasons that, for instance, you would, you would um, give your firstborn or your, your son a name on the eighth day and you'd be circumcised and brought into the covenant of Israel because God was doing something there. It wasn't just a natural thing. It was natural for sure, but it was also divine. And so what they're saying here is that on this eighth day, on this eighth day of quiet, after tabernacles is done, we want you to take all the joy that you've gathered. We want to have you make it like a well of light in your heart so that you can pour it out. And here he is on that eighth day. And um, he's talking about how He's the light of the world. So that's the context and it, it makes those words just come alive, right? That, that John has started out this gospel that, um, you know, that Jesus is the word. I mean, he's the word that spoke creation and being and he's the light of the world. He is, he is the life that is the life of men or the, the life that is the light of men is how he puts it at the beginning of the gospel. And there's not anything that was made apart from him. It was all made through him. And it's that light that has permeated creation from the beginning. He's the word of God and he's the light that creates. And then he comes into our humanity, into our vulnerability, like our tabernacle, if you will, with a thatched 
roofs of our lives where we're exposed to all sorts of trouble and difficulty. And he, as God, dwells in that tabernacle in our midst. And then what John says is we behold him, the glory as of an only son of God. We beheld him in the midst of that. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying. You may not fully realize it right now, but I am shining that glory here, and I am the light of the world. I think it's interesting. I'll get to this in just a second. But I want to say a couple of things about what I believe that the Lord would like to minister to us here this morning. And Jesus is saying, in the treasury, in the place where those lamps had been lit, that I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have this light of life, that light of joy and life. He bears witness to who he is as sent by the Father, as one sent in the joyous love of the Father to communicate that joy to us. But the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jewish people of that day, many of them don't receive it. They think that maybe he's kind of bragging that you are testifying according to yourself. Where's your witness? You need to have at least two witnesses. So it's not really meeting their requirements. And he's saying to them, you're judging according to the flesh. My judgment is true. And I'm not alone in it. But the Father is with me. He sent me. And he's never left me. And he is with me bearing witness to who I am. I'm really from a different place above, from a divine home, and I've come into this world that you would not have to die in your sins. And you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. It's a very powerful word for him to say. He's saying that I am the light of the world. He's saying that I am God, I am, as he was revealed to Moses in that first theophany of light at the bush, I am. And that is too hard for a lot of us to take in. It was too hard for a lot of people in his day to really absorb that. And so some don't come. And it's sad because there's joy that's available. Uh, just think a little bit about why people maybe don't come. This little section happens right before this. So on this eighth day, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives and he's, he's in this same area, right? It precedes the little talk that we just read out of the gospel. And there's this woman that's accused of sin. She's actually accused of adultery. And all these elders gather around and they're going to throw stones at her. And they, they bring her to Jesus and he says... He's like drawing in the, the ground and they say, um, and then he says to them, whoever's not sinned, cast the first stone. And then the oldest person leaves and then everyone else leaves after that. And then he says to her, go, I don't condemn you either, sin no more. And what it, it evokes for those who were there witnessing that is one of the reasons there's a tremendous amount of joy at the Feast of the Tabernacles is because you actually have people who've been forgiven. There's a lot of weight involved in not being forgiven in life. And you're not going to be able to dance very well if you're under a huge weight of guilt and shame. Like, if you've ever felt a lot of shame, do you feel like getting up and dancing and singing? No. It's just a very, very tight and closed experience. And um, what happens in the Feast of the Tabernacles that I think Jesus is beginning to get to 
we'll unpack this just a little bit more, is that when those old men were singing and dancing, they were celebrating because many of them had had a confirmation that they'd been walking in the light and that therefore they're children of light. But also for those who had not been and had departed and wandered away, they were dancing because they'd been restored. They'd repented, they'd been forgiven. And I think one of the things that Jesus is alluding to is he's saying, when I am raised up, He's alluding to the cross, but in John, he's also alluding in many ways to his ultimate glory when he ascends into heaven and is in that full shining light of, the God, of, of God's glory. But he's saying, when I am lifted up, then you will know that I am. And there's something about that place of atonement. There's something about standing at the foot of the cross where John and Mary did stand, where all of a sudden eyes do get opened and they realize that he's the Lamb of God. They realize that he's the glory of Israel and the light of the nations. By the way, on the eighth day, and this probably in this very same place, when Jesus was born, Simeon had his prophecy over him. So eight days after Jesus was born, his parents took him for his name day and his circumcision, and that's when Simeon says, okay, Lord, you can let me now die in peace, for my eyes have seen Thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before all the peoples. A light of the, to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. And that's what's being fulfilled in Jesus right now. But he's saying you're going to especially realize that when I'm lifted up. That's what Simeon says to Mary, too. You will also have your heart pierced. And there's something about that place where we're standing at the foot of the cross and we see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that when we are there in a place of conviction and repentance and confession and we receive it, light streams in and then we're set free. Something very sad happens right after this because Jesus is right near the Pool of Siloam. Remember we're talking about that, that water ceremony? They go from the Pool of Siloam up there and then they pour out the water and the wine and it was a sacrificial offering in view of their hopes for the kingdom to come. And Jesus, this same day, the eighth day, when he's trying to help us understand how do we take all that light into our real lives, he's right there at the same pool, and there's a man that's been blind from birth, and he reaches down to the dust, spits in it, makes a little bit of clay, puts it on his eyes, and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which the man does, and then he gains his sight. But it's the Sabbath. And so, again, this creates a little bit of trouble for Jesus. But this man's like, well, nobody's ever done this since the beginning. He tries to bear witness to the, the authorities of the day. He even tries to bear witness to his parents. And his parents abandon him. And he loses his community because they can't receive the fact that this could be done on the Sabbath and that God is actually present in Christ still working on the Sabbath to open eyes that are blind. And so he'll say later to the Pharisees who end up rejecting both this man and Jesus, and that's a messianic sign, the, the, the eyes are being opened, he'll say, because you don't think you're blind, you're stuck in your sins. So I guess what I want to say is, first of all, 
for us to come into the light, there's, there's always this first step. A lot of times it's about how do we enter back in if we've wandered away. If we've stepped out of the light and started to walk in the darkness, it's a very simple thing. It's to come back into the light or it's to invite him in and let him bring his light into the dark places of your soul. And I, I want to encourage us in this discipline of confession. If you don't have a discipline of confession, where you actually expose your heart to the light, I want to encourage you to do that. We'll talk about more of that in some of the upcoming sermons. But um, I regularly do it on a monthly basis. Even this morning, I went to Father Stephen and said, there's something on my conscience. I really want to be free this morning to minister and to celebrate the joy of the Lord and being restored to his presence. So Steve ministered the grace and joy of the Lord to me in that moment. So that's one thing I want to say. Um, the second thing I'd like to say is that um, the, um, there's an interesting note that Jesus calls out in his text. Is as he tells this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, John translates it and you might not have known this, but Siloam means sent one. An apostle means sent. And in John, this is a very powerful expression because Jesus has been saying all along, I am sent by the Father, and I'm bearing witness to the Father, and the Father's with me. And I'm going to send you as I have been sent. And I want you to go in my words and in my name and in my presence I'm never going to leave you. And the way that I'm not going to leave you is the Spirit's going to come and minister me to you. The Spirit's going to come and remind you of my words. The Spirit's going to come and take you into the life that I share with the Father, and I'm going to send you in that same way. So he's saying, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent one. It's the water of the salvation that leads to joy. And what does that man do is that then he actually obeys the Lord. He's sent by a word, and he obeys that word. He follows Jesus, in other words. He walks in the light. He stays in the light. But there's a cost to that because he also is faithful to bear witness to the light. So as I've already said, he started to lose his community. Jesus had a hard time with this too. Right now, he's actually being rejected by his own. Like, he thought that they would receive him. Maybe he did or maybe he didn't, right? But they're not receiving him. He went, first of all, by the way, when at the beginning of his ministry, he's full of the Spirit. He reads the passage from Isaiah, and he says the Scripture's been fulfilled. I am full of the light of, those, uh, of, of the Spirit, and it's been fulfilled, and his own hometown rejects him. There's a cost to bearing witness. So, I want to encourage us in two ways. I'd like us to, yes, adopt a way of, of um, confession, but I want us to think a little bit more about how we can be sent ones. Um, one of the things that came to mind for me is that as you enter into the eighth day, and it's a much quieter celebration, right? It's how do you take the light of this massive celebration and fuse it into your daily life? so that you bring that light to every part of your existence. So since it's a Sabbath day, one of the things that would happen is that in the home, the mother of the house would light the candles. And she would at least light two candles, right? She would light one 
And they, typically, the, the rabbis would say one represents the husband and one represents the wife, and it's this complete reflection of the image of God. And she'd be saying this, this prayer, blessed are you, Lord, ruler of the universe, for you have commanded the lighting of candles on Sabbath. And she'd be bringing a blessing to herself and bringing a blessing to the whole house by doing that. It's a powerful blessing. I was in Jerusalem and uh, trying to get my um, <clears throat> wife a gift, and then we came across this shop in, in the Jewish quarter, and um, I went in the, the store there, and there was this painting that caught my eye right away. I don't know how many of you can see it, but you can come up after the service. It's a picture of a, of a young mother. Well, maybe she's not so young, I don't know. But immediately, immediately it made me think of my wife, Jeannie. Um, and when I asked the, the owner about the painting, he said, this is painted on Jerusalem stone, by the way, which is all the buildings are made of Jerusalem stone there, and the temple is made of Jerusalem stone in many, many ways, in many cases, I think. Um, but it's the main stone of Jerusalem. And he said, well, it's called the Woman of Valor. Because it's, a, it's like the greatest blessing that you can receive is to have the mother of the house bring a blessing. And she's doing it, looking out the back of her window, and she can actually see the light of the temple courtyard on Shabbat when everybody else is there at the wailing wall. And there's the two candles that are lit, and the dinner is prepared that she's prepared in advance. And there's this warm light there that she's making sure brings joyous blessing to her family. And so she lights those candles for joy. It's a more quiet joy than tabernacles, but it's meant to permeate her household. It's meant to permeate her life. Um, and I thought of Jeannie, yeah. I thought that's how she is. That woman of worth, that woman of valor. It comes from Proverbs 31. And it describes a woman who has lots of energy, she has this joy of life I've been talking about. And she makes things possible in the life of her home for things to be creative, for her husband to be effective and creative in his work. And it's thought that King Lemuel was writing it as a tribute to his mother because that's how she was, and I, I see my wife that way so often, out there doing work in joy with a smile on her face. I notice that because when I do work, I'm not smiling. <laughs> Again, Scandinavian. But I think, I think what, one of the things that I feel with Stuart, one of the things I often feel with Jeannie is that there's an expenditure of effort that comes out of joy. So she'd be down kneeling in the garden, squatting like this, and I come out to talk to her, and he's like, and she tells me, well, there's this new research that says we are really in trouble because we're not squatting. See, I can't even squat at all. She's down squatting like this. She's pulling weeds, and she's got a huge smile on her face. I'm feeling joy. And I, I think, yes, Jeannie and Stuart, they really do portray enthusiasm. That means to be, like, enthused means to be filled with God, filled with the presence of God. And you're taking it down into soil. You're taking it down into earth in order to bring blessing. It's expenditure of effort. It costs you something. Thankfully, I believe most of us are receiving that. But sometimes people won't receive what you give to them. And that's another potential cost but it's worth it. Now, Stuart brings a lot of this joy home, but I know from Catherine it's not always the case, his wife. You know, and it's not always the case for Jeannie. So sometimes it requires even greater effort to do it. 
And I think it's hardest when you bring it home, but that's the first place you're supposed to share that light. It's the first mission field after tabernacles. The coming of the kingdom, let it penetrate into your home. You need it. Don't believe that you don't need it. Invite him to come in and to bring that light so that you can then share it with your family. I think for some of us, though, it, it does get involve going out. Like the father in the house in Proverbs 31, say, it's sort of like the husband, right? It's like me. A lot of my work is out there in the world, and it requires some effort for me to do it as well. I think Jeannie also is showing me, like, you, you can bear witness elsewhere too. Jesus has sent you as he's been sent. He's with you in the spirit. He will give you words if you will stay open. I was thinking about this this past week because I've been really tired still. I'm maybe not over the, the, um, the jet lag. See, I can't even think of the word jet lag. I'm so tired. But, and um, I, I have um, been filling in for Father Jens at the Dayton. And I, I love doing ministry there. Many of you know, at the Dayton, we've got a lot of folks who live on site. And they receive different levels of care. But some of them are recovering from PTSD, from war. Some of them are recovering from addiction. Some of them are recovering from really difficult mental illness. And I go there, and I always am grateful after I've been there because there's, there is a lot of love given as well as love poured out. But there's some folks that are really difficult. And there's a particular gentleman two weeks ago. His name is Mike. And I hadn't really talked much to Mike. But he's outside our circle where we're doing our Eucharistic prayer and celebrating communion. And he's yelling things at the group. And I can see it's rattling the group a little bit. And he's, there's some kind of thing going on with Mike. And I talked to him afterwards, and he's yelling at me then. And he's saying, don't you dare threaten my sister. Don't you dare. And I'm like, I'm realizing he's afraid for his sister about something. And it's, it's probably a little bit, um, maybe a kind of a psychosis, I'm not sure. But immediately what the Lord prompted in me was, he loves his sister. He cares about his sister. And I knew that what I could do is I could, I could commend that bit of light in his life. I could sort of bless that part of his life. He's actually walking in the light, even if it's just a teeny bit there, and I could bring a fatherly blessing. It's good that you love your sister. And I could see that gave him pause. Well, the next week, this past Tuesday, Mike shows up immediately after the Eucharist, and he sits down, and he's way more open. I'm like, oh, good. And um, there's this light in his eye, and he says, I really want to pray for my family today. So he's already taken the light, I think, that he's begun to come into, and he started to minister it out. He started to be a person who wants to see that joy shared. And so he says, can you pray with me for my family? And I'm like, that's great. I'll pray with you for your family. And after we prayed, he had just such a huge relief. And, and um, he was not entirely articulate, but he's been through a lot. But I could see that the joy had been re-released in him. And I found out that just a couple days later, he passed away. You know, and, and how important it was for that joy of the light of life to be renewed in him. It was almost like he was trying to get himself ready to come into the light that knows no setting, which is true joy. 
a joy that will never be taken away, where all tears are wiped away. So I want to encourage us to be people who are both cleansed and washed in confession, but also people who are witnesses to like, even if it requires some effort. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being the light of life. I thank you that your gift of pouring out yourself in blood and water and spirit in light, that you are now the light of the world, that you are the light that serves as the lamp of heaven. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we come to our confession, that whatever there is that's prevented us from receiving that, that you would once again renew it. And you would bring our feet to dancing once again. And Lord, I pray too for the promptings of your spirit to bear witness, even if it costs something. I pray that you would strengthen those that we might walk as children of the light who love brothers and sisters with open hearts, full of your light and your love, spreading your light and your love till all know you and rejoice in you. We pray this in your holy name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.